and welcome to Filling in the Gaps. I am Justin. And I'm Darren. And today we're going to be discussing the movie called The Endless. It is from 2017. It is... Would this be another low-budget one, could we say? There are some special effects that obviously cost a bit of money, but for the most part, it's a fairly small... Set in the desert. Yeah, I mean, pretty low-budget, but yeah, like you said, some, some special effects. Horror movie, I guess, is it? Would it be classed as a horror movie? I, I've I've seen people refer to it as saying it was the horror movie that actually not hereditary out of its kind of top spot as the horror of 2017. Here's what I would say. I would say that it is somewhere between fantasy, horror, and possibly science fiction. Mm. It doesn't really, to me, fit any of those genres. What it does fit is obviously Lovecraft yeah. in a way. And you know that because immediately at the beginning of the movie, there's a Lovecraft quote. <laughs> it so starts with it. You do get that. This is not a spoiler. We are still in the spoiler-free section. But yeah, there's a quote within the first kind of second of the film actually starting. So I think if it's that mostly, and Lovecraft kind of defies being put into one genre anyway. So I'm, I'm kind of saying it's kind of its own thing, really. Yeah, I'd agree. But much like a lot of the other things we've talked about, I think that this is the type of movie where if you've seen Twilight Zone, Black Mirror, or, um, I don't know, what, what else would you say? I mean, like you're saying, like, it's kind of a science fiction-y, even something like Cube, maybe, this would kind of fit that mold a little bit. It's really just, it just feels kind of like its own thing. Yeah. It does have elements that other movies have used, but... It really, really feels like its own thing. So if that's at all appealing, then I definitely would recommend it. Well, I'd recommend it to almost anyone, this movie. But knowing that it will only probably really hit with a small selection of people. I don't know what else to say without giving it away. Well, I mean, what's the story about then? It's about two brothers. Okay, so at the beginning is two brothers who we find out very early on have kind of escaped from a cult and are having kind of a rough go of it because they don't have money and they don't have pretty much kind of any social life outside of each other. And so they're not incredibly happy and the one brother wants to go back and that's basically what sets the movie up. Yeah, pretty much. And that's kind of as much as we could talk about without really getting into spoilers. So, yeah, I don't know, it's kind of a terribly short spoiler-free section. It's about two brothers who, yeah. That's very misleading, though. It's a wonderful story about two brothers on their way, you know, like two brothers on a journey to whatever. That doesn't sound at all like what this movie is yeah, really about. Yeah, it sounds pretty boring, yeah. <laughs> two brothers finding themselves again. It sounds a bit like a Lifetime movie or something. Yeah. No, yeah. this is not that. So you get in Reader's Digest or something. If you've listened to this podcast and you've liked what we've said about the other movies that we've had, like Triangle and Cube and Upstream Color... If you like those kinds of movies, then this is probably definitely up your alley. Go and see it now, and then come back when you've watched it. Beware, the spoiler section is coming. Dun dun dun. spoiler section and the endless is quite an interesting movie i do really enjoy this movie which is why i recommended it to you and then you found out that this is one of three movies made by the same group and the other movies are spring and resolution yeah so resolution was first spring was next and then the endless is the most recent one that they've done yeah you said Resolution is worth watching, Spring is probably not. You weren't really enjoying it. I mean, I like what they've done with it. They tried to do something different, because Resolution is pretty much part one of The Endless. I'm not sure how I'd feel about watching Resolution first and then watching The Endless. You haven't seen the Resolution, so we can't talk about that anyway. 
So you'll be watching it in the same way that I did. And then we can maybe talk about that when we... We're no, no doubt going to talk about resolution at some point anyway. So this might be some kind of a, a weird way to watch this series, I guess. Because I watched The Endless, then I watched Resolution, then I watched Spring. So I watched them in 3-1-2 rather than 1-2-3. Spring isn't really anything to do with this movie. They went off and that's, that's pure kind of sci-fi almost, that movie. And they did something completely different. There are some references to the characters. It's a lot like kind of Kevin Smith's universe where they've all got the same kind of references dropped here and there. You do get like Mike's name dropped and uh, Carl's name dropped at some point. But yeah, Spring has really nothing to do with this. It might be set in the same... It is set in the same universe, though. But yeah, The Endless, I mean, the quote at the beginning is basically what we talked about before. is a Lovecraft quote and it says, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And that speaks a volume for what this movie is about, and kind of sets a really good tone for what's to come, I think. It's also the second quote that comes in, and it's an anonymous quote that says, Friends tell each other how they feel with relative frequency. Siblings wait for a more convenient time, like their deathbeds. Right, yeah. Because that's kind of, I mean... Not, it's not... basically the two elements of the story that yeah. work hand in hand throughout the whole thing. And so I, I do like that. They've kind of set up, these are the two things to pay attention to all the way through. Even though there's a whole lot of other things going on. They're saying these are the two key elements. And I, sometimes that bothers me. Because I want to take out of a movie what I take out of it. Not what they're trying to tell me to. I, I felt like... Mr. Nobody was kind of pushing that a bit. But this one, no, that fits because that's exactly what they've done with the story. Yeah, and I think even if you saw those quotes and then, you know, I mean, unless you're smarter than I am, of course, because I forget that stuff. And like, but it's not until the end of it where I'm like, oh, you know, it's, it's not something that would take, like set me off to like, this is what this movie is about from now on. You know, it's something you realize as an afterthought or watching it again, really. It was where I picked up on that quote and say, like, ah. I get that now. I... Yeah, I didn't get it the first time, but I felt it was subtle enough the first time, but yeah, the second time, all of a sudden now, you see how it plays throughout the entire movie. Yeah, yeah. So, uh... Okay, so apparently, I took notes that kind of, as always, go straight through in <laughs> order and are a bit probably too detailed, and Darren has just written down a mishmash of, like, Ideas that have come to him. Scribbles of a madman, it looks like. It looks like something that belongs on a on the wall of a hospital. Yeah, because I don't know how much we're going to edit out, but you're even having trouble reading your own handwriting. <laughs> I'll try to go quickly through, you know, the, the plot points, the story elements here. But one of the things that I want to pay attention to the most, one of the things that I want the listeners to really understand is how great this movie is at slowly building the knowledge without dumping it all on you at the beginning or having some scene that feels completely out of place to explain absolutely everything. I feel by the time we get our exposition, it's the perfect time. And even then, it's not overly done. Everything about knowledge building in this movie feels a bit organic. And that's amazing for this kind of movie, I think. Especially given that we had not seen the other one. Yeah. So we had no idea what we were getting into with this one. Okay, movie starts, package arrives, Aaron, who I believe is the younger brother, gets a cassette out of the box, but it's a really old video cassette, so he has to go to some sort of yard sale and pay $20 to get a camera that will fit this cassette to play it. When he does play it, it's kind of a woman with a yellow scarf. To us, it doesn't really mean anything yet. There's a fight about the car battery because they're kind of desperate for a car battery, and instead of buying the car battery, he bought this video recorder. So now they don't have a car battery. I love that part because it's so much like Jack and the Beanstalk. It's like, go and sell the car and get some medicine. And he's like, what? You bought? You didn't buy the thing that we need to survive. You bought a tape recorder. Like, I love that. It was brilliant. I will talk a little bit about these two characters. So the two main characters are Justin and Aaron. So Justin is the one with the beard. Aaron is like clean shaven. Interestingly, this is also the real names of the actors. Yeah. And these actors are also the ones who essentially are the brain behind this movie, it seems. They wrote it, produced directed it. it, produced it. So, yeah, these two, for whatever amount of time it took to put together this movie, this must have been 
their life, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're good actors as well. Like, it's surprising that they're multi-talented, definitely. Yeah, this wasn't Tommy Rizzo of The Room, you yeah. know, putting himself <laughs> in there. These guys are good. And in fact, I think most of the people in this movie are pretty good when it comes to acting, even though I haven't seen most of them in anything else that I kind of recognize. No. maybe I thought I recognized the prospector guy, like Tim, I think his name is. You probably did because he was in The Walking Dead. Ah, okay. Who was he in The Walking Dead? He played Axel. It was in the prison season. Ah, okay, okay. So Justin is like the older, more controlling brother. Aaron is the... I don't think really told about age, but definitely Justin has more kind of control over him. Yeah. Their job is cleaners, which neither of them seem very happy about. They are living off of kind of ramen. And <laughs> Justin even denies himself that to start saving money for a car battery. So they're in some pretty dire straits. We see later one of them is holding a letter about, I think it's like a credit card debt, like, oh, that credit card was a bad idea because now we're even worse off. We also get just bits and pieces of what they refer to as the cult throughout this. So Justin at one point is in kind of a therapy, but they had a special name for it, but I, I can't remember what it was now and I, I forgot to write it down. But it's for kind of exiting a cult. There's some sort of... Oh, deprogramming. That's it, deprogramming. And he's saying how Aaron seems like he's unhappy and he doesn't know quite how to fix it. Aaron is in there later and kind of saying that he, he does miss it. Like, we definitely get the feeling that Aaron misses it. Aaron was saying, gosh, we used to get real food. Yeah, exactly. And now we're living off this ramen. Yeah, thing. life seems a lot better for them. And that's great because it builds up because we're expecting, like, these guys are going to be evil. These This cult is going to be... Like, it's a bad idea to go back, is you know. But the, the picture that Aaron paints is like, oh, yeah, he's completely brainwashed and stuff. Uh, uh, yeah, you're just being set up for something that's totally the opposite. I love the bit where before Justin goes to deprogramming, he's trimming Justin's hair, and then he gets kind of angry at him, and then he just shaves a big stripe <laughs> down his head. I don't know why Justin didn't bother to just go ahead and shave the rest of his head before he went to deprogramming, but... I think that was purposely to have that in there. Like, I think it was a joke, sort of. It could have been ad-libbed, man. But he knew that Aaron was struggling because life is hard when you have to kind of take care of yourself. Whereas clearly the, the cult or the commune, however you want to refer to it, was taking care of them. And they kind of missed that. Well, at least Aaron does. Aaron says he wants to go back for closure. And Justin kind of... We know from his therapy session, he was saying, gosh, like, I don't know what else I can do. And so he thinks if he can just get him there for one day, one night, say goodbye, because they just ran away before. That's right. Say goodbye, have some closure, then maybe it can help Aaron to move on. And that's what he's desperate for, is to get his brother to just move on a bit. They visit a memoriam to their mother, because as we find out later... Their parents died in a car crash. Or, or at least, we don't know what happened to the dad, I think. I think it's just, they just, just refer the to the mother. Yeah. But Hal later makes reference to the fact that he pulled them out of the burning car. I'm not sure about that one. That's another point that seems like it has a problem. But let's get into this point here where they look at the painting yeah. that they left. Mm -hmm. Because Aaron says, oh, look at this painting. Isn't that nice that somebody is visiting? And Justin says, no, we did that. It's held up amazingly well. And yeah, it has <laughs> held up amazingly well. Too much so. Mm. But this is also where we see the first of these random kind of what Carl will later refer to as kind of a hoodoo stick. But Justin says that they're likely left over from some sort of volcanic activity. I just started referring to them as volcano sticks at this point. I call them totem poles for some reason, but yeah. Well, that's confusing because later we actually see <laughs> Things that would much more commonly be referred to as totem poles. Yeah. But these weird geographic things that seem to just be appearing out of the ground and nobody put them there. And that's very, very important. But we're just kind of showing it. Oh, isn't this weird? And then we're going to see a whole lot of them. So that becomes very important later. But this is another point where it just seems part of the scene and it doesn't really feel like it's forced. Yeah, it's very natural, like, okay. They've just told you something really important, but you're just like, 
Oh, yeah, that's weird. All right, move on. As they're driving in, they pass by a man who's walking very quickly. We will find out later. This is Carl. Carl? <laughs> we'll probably be bleeping his name out a lot. That's fine. He pays no attention to them. He seems to be focused on where he's going. And that's how we're going to see him for a lot of the movie. We get into the sign of Camp Arcadia. And Dave is standing there. Oh, yeah, with his big grin. <laughs> Grinning weirdly. He's got on his white button-down shirt and a blue bum bag on, and he just looks a bit weird. So this is your first impression of the camp, as they refer to it. And yeah, it's not a great first impression. <laughs> a man in a flannel shirt comes out, he greets them warmly, and he basically says, well, maybe we need to go back a little bit and talk about what Justin and Aaron believe at this point about the cult. So they've made reference to castration. They've made reference to the fact that they were all going to die. In kind of mass suicide, Heaven's Gate deal. Yeah. They did reference the fact that they wear uniforms, but... They don't. They don't. But as we'll see in a later video clip, they appeared to have done when they were younger. Sure. Yeah. So maybe that's something that has changed. So those things they've kind of held on to. And we've even seen that at one point they had been on the news explaining how they had escaped from this cult. So it wasn't just something that they've gotten out of, but they've also publicly made it known that this is what they got out of and these were the things they were saying. Justin says something about wanting to visit and say goodbye while they were still here. And Hal says, we're always here. The first time you watch it, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It would make sense. We were here 10 years ago when you guys left. We're still here. But we know now on second viewing, or if you're listening to this now and you've already seen through the whole movie, you know what this is. This is, yeah, they are always here because we are now really being introduced to the idea of loops these kind of loops that everybody is stuck in in this movie. So that line, the first time, just washed right over me. But the second time made me laugh. We go into uh, like a cafeteria kind of thing where they're given real food. And after eating ramen and just nothing for ages, yeah, it must seem amazing. Because they can also eat as much as they want. And they're given beer as well, because that's what Tim does, is he brews beer. And we meet Shane and Anna. Anna is the one who had the yellow scarf from the video, and Justin comments on the fact that everybody looks the same. Aaron will later try to rationalize this by saying it's the healthy living that they're doing. Oh, well, they're out here. They're not stuck doing a terrible job. They've got fresh air and fresh food. Well, <laughs> sign me up then. I'm going to go and live there. We also get to meet Lizzie, who apparently just wandered here from some sort of asylum. Yes. That is something that is mentioned in Resolution. It's okay. not, not, not a huge point at all. But again, what this movie does well is, and especially for people like us who have never seen Resolution, is it's almost like they've said, yeah, a lot of people missed that. It was a small film. We're going to drop some little Easter eggs in. But if you haven't seen Resolution, don't worry. This is a self-contained movie that you will not be left in the cold with. So like these little things like, oh, yeah, she escaped from mental asylum. Oh, they mention a little bit about that. It's a, it's a tiny little point from the first movie. So yeah, so that makes sense to me now after seeing Resolution about that song. But yeah, you don't even get to see it in the first movie. It's just mentioned in passing. It's mentioned. Okay. But again, doesn't that maybe tie in with the kind of Cthulhu thing? Like there's always like the mental asylum nearby. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. Uh, it could be. I, I don't know. So I didn't in, really in, think in, about an, that. in an area of so much kind of weird psychic energy, perhaps a lot of people do go crazy. So that's where you, you want to have your asylum, close to the, the kind of hotspot, I guess. We already mentioned that Tim brews beer. And this becomes very important because this explains how the community here survives. They survive on basically the beer money that is made from the brewing. I like that a lot because it takes what could have been a very complex idea and boil it down to, we have one product the world wants, and we can make money on it. And that's how we survive. And, you know, they live pretty cheaply. They tend to grow their own food. They grow their own weed as well. Yeah, they live on kind of scraps of clothing or thrift store clothing somehow. Their needs are very simple. 
but have virtually no technology that we see for a very long time anyway. I, I like that it is a simple way to deal with what could have been a complex problem or explanation, or in other movies would just be ignored. Yeah. And we would just be left wondering, well, how do these people survive? There must be some sort of money coming in. And so I, I appreciate that a lot in this movie. It's in this conversation, though, that Shane says something really weird, where he says it takes a million hours to master something. And so you need said- 115 years to actually master something. Because typically it's, what, the 10,000? 10, 10, yeah. So that seemed really weird. And I didn't know if that was meant to be a joke or that... I, I clearly think that's meant to be a joke. It's also meant to be kind of a hint as to what's coming up. But when I saw it the first time, I went, wow, this guy's an idiot. That's what I thought. Is that I thought he's just misremembering the quote, I guess. But perhaps as well, these guys have just lost all track of time. They go into their bunks. Justin finds a note saying, please be quiet. He goes for a run and he sees Carl walking again. And that's kind of it for that. That becomes more important later. There's a bonfire that evening. Uh, Shane is doing a magic trick. Dave goes to pick the card. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're always picking the same card. Pick a different one. And Hal invites Justin to his cabin where we see, like, there's a violin. There seems to be a ton of ham radio equipment. There's a map with weird circles on it. At this point, the first time, you don't really know what's going on. But they spend a lot of time talking about this unfinished equation, which I think I see what they're trying to go for here, but to me it didn't quite work, I think. This equation is so foreign to me that it basically means nothing. It could just be gibberish. It probably is gibberish, but why did it not make sense to you? I mean, obviously the the equation doesn't make sense to you, but... Well, it's exactly what Justin points out. What is this equation? What is it trying to solve? And all Hal says is, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. I like to think that somehow he thinks this equation is a way to escape. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. It's something to, or at least to understand. But we're never told that. So it just feels like they spend a lot of time on this equation without any kind of payoff for it later. The only payoff we get is later he just puts a question mark and that's it. (laughs) That's not really enough for as much time as they spent on it. So it just, to me, feels like they spent a bit too much time dealing with something that doesn't really have a payoff. Whereas the rest of the movie is so good about giving us hints and little things that all do have a payoff. Yeah, I think that the whole point of what you just described, the violin, the magic tricks, the math equation, all of that, yeah, I agree. They spent too much time and they really focused on the equation. You're like, this is going to mean something later on and it doesn't. But I think the point is that they've had a million hours to perfect things. I I totally get that because, you know, that comes right into Shane, like, when he does the card trick and it doesn't work for some reason. I don't know if it didn't work or if Justin was just messing with it. Yeah, I'm guessing he was. But then he does that trick where he throws the baseball in the air. Yeah. And it stays a ridiculously long time in the air. He said, oh, hold on a minute. Moves Justin's hand kind of right under where it's going to fall. That was brilliant. I think that was the first bit when I watched it the first time where I realized the movie is doing something now. Because until this point, I didn't know if anything was going to happen. Until this point, it could have just been these guys escape from a cult and they're going to get here and find out, yeah, it is a cult and these people are all crazy. Yeah, it's just a story about mending your relationships and stuff. Yeah, not actually something supernatural. And then right after teasing us with this, with the baseball bit, This is where they have us go into the kind of woods near the trees and do what they refer to as the struggle. So there's a rope, it's dark, and basically Hal pulls on the rope and pulls on the rope, and something else seems to be pulling back, or at least holding back at this point. Aaron volunteers to give it a try. He doesn't get it the first time, but as Hal has mentioned, this whole thing is a kind of metaphor for the struggle and trying to continue persevering, which is very much a metaphor for how these poor people have to continue to live their lives because they're stuck and they have to keep surviving because they have no other choice. But it's at this point that I do start to have a problem. We'll, We'll come back to the struggle in a second. But if these people all know what's going on and they know they have to persevere, I mean, they seem happy. Do you think they're happy? Um, I think this is where the kind of cult aspect comes into it. 
I don't think they're a cult. Like, they're not a re- really a religious cult in the technical sense of the term. Not in the way that Justin believes that they're a cult, which we find out he made up anyway, you know, just to get his brother out of there. He didn't even believe it. Some of those things. But they do kind of worship this deity, this kind of creature in the woods that apparently is pulling back. Yeah. But I think what they are thinking is, like, they're stuck here. They have a good loop. They got a 10-year run of it. And they're doing all these things like learning magic tricks, learning how to do complex mathematical equations, learning how to brew beer. Tim is trying to perfect this recipe. And they've been given this chance to almost perfect themselves as human beings. But there's a price to pay at the end. I think they're happy up to an extent. I think the whole thing is a metaphor for life in general, as it is like, I think what this movie is trying to say is, can you ever be truly happy anyway? Like, I think that's one of the things that I took away from it. Can you ever, like, when you say, I want to be this kind of person, I want to be a a professional magician. Will you be happy once you are? Or will there always be something else? It's endless, you know? It's like, your your progress is, it never ends. You'll never be happy. I think that's good. I do just worry at this point. I I think why I brought it up at this point is that if, they all know, yet they seem to be wanting Aaron and Justin to stay yeah. w- without properly explaining the situation. And this feels very kind of, I don't know, shady to me. It feels very well, it insincere. It is. I think, obviously, Tim disagrees. That's why he seems angry off in the distance and why he does what he does right at the end. But everybody else, yeah, they just seem to be ignoring the fact and just happy to have new people, perhaps. Maybe it's a selfish motive. Or maybe, maybe what I took away from that is they're just playing along because they don't want them to know. Because if they say, oh, hey, well, A, can you even explain that to them without sounding like you are a cult and crazy and then they'll just run away immediately? Or they know the ascension is coming. If they manage to trap Justin and Aaron here, will that complete some kind of circuit? And then will they be finally free? I guess, but I feel like if that's what they were going for, I we think needed to see that somehow. Well, I'm pretty sure that's what Hal's plan was all along, was to get them here. And, well, not get them here. They came through the god, which we'll find out later. But I think his, his main idea, and that's where him and Tim clash heads, is Hal wants them to stay because he thinks it's going to solve their problems because they're the ones that got away and maybe we'll talk about this later and the mother i think i think that's she might have been in this cult too well let's go back then to the struggle aaron tries once can't but gets another chance because and they seem very happy about that yeah we want you to try again to struggle again to persevere because that's the whole point of this he ties a fishing knot, which he'd only moments before when he had a bit of alone time with Anna was saying, oh, I used to fish when I was a kid. I don't do it anymore. I'm not even sure I could do a knot anymore. All of a sudden, he just does it, right? Kind of, I, I'm totally fine with this. I think this is kind of a muscle memory thing. Once he started, he realized he could. I don't think it's the type of thing where him being back magically gave him that information. <laughs> but he ties this knot, puts it around himself, and so thus is able to struggle for longer. Everybody's happy. Hal says this is the first time anybody's ever tried that. That seems a bit ridiculous, considering that they've been who knows how long in this loop. Yeah. Then Hal makes Justin try, and Justin just gets... (laughs) Nailed. (laughs) He gets pulled right off of his feet and cuts up his hand, which leads to Lizzie bandaging it up and Hal coming in. And it's a very creepy scene where he's kind of saying, you two have a good time. And then he just stays there watching them. If his plan was to get the two of them together, he should have walked away <laughs> at this point. Not light up a cigarette and just stand there staring at them. Nothing creepy about me. <laughs> Carry on. We see Tim by locked up shed. With it. It's just this massive lock on it. Ridiculously large lock on it because it's basically just kind of chained up so the chain is much weaker than the lock you could just get rid of the chain but anyway we're told it's brewing equipment but clearly it's not brewing equipment but we won't get to see what it is until right at the end Aaron of course unsurprisingly wants to stay another night he's having a good time with Anna he's having real food he wants to stay so he suggests that they stay and go shooting in the woods I I don't really know why that's an appeal. I think that's what they used to do as kids, wasn't it? And they used to do that together. I guess so. 
I love this bit of them shooting though, because this is where Aaron is shooting and he's having no problem hitting things. Justin goes to shoot and he can't seem to hit a thing. And you look and you see that the bullets are all on the ground and they appear to have hit something and Justin can't get over that. What did they hit? And it's an odd thing here. I'm not sure if I would say this is possibly an inconsistency in the story because Aaron is accepting. So he's accepting of what's going on. So his bullets go through, whereas clearly the entity, the thing that they often refer to as a thing, it's getting in the way of Justin's bullets because he doesn't believe because he wants to get out. So I guess we could look at it that way. But that means that this creature, this thing is mentally kind of controlling the barriers. Whereas I took them to be as kind of a permanent thing that was just always there. Like once it was set up, it's there for good. You mean the time bubbles? Yeah. Um, I, I just looked at it as an invisible hand. Like, so when, when Aaron's shooting, he's doing fine. Maybe even the entity, the thing is actually guiding his bullets to hit them. So he's, so he's having, you know, oh, you're a crack shot. You're, you're doing awesome. And then as soon as Justin gets up, just this invisible hand just comes down, boom. And then he's just like blocking the bullets. I see it as like, this whole thing is, this is really what my notes are about, but this is kind of getting to the territory of what are the themes of this movie is, do you really want an interventionist God? Like this is a, this is a kind of religious movie about be careful what you wish for. Do you want a personal Jesus really? Cause this is maybe what would happen. And so I think that this entity right now is directly intervening and purposely stopping uh, okay. just Justin's bullets. I could go with that more. I think there was a, one of the lava sticks there. So I think for me, I had assumed that it was one of the barriers that was somehow getting in the uh, way. So, I mean, at the end of the time, we are pretty clear on what those lava sticks are for. The boundary. The, the boundary of where the time loop ends, yeah. Even before that, because we're coming up to something very soon. Justin sees Carl again. Carl walks off and apparently disappears. He seems to disappear. Justin finds a shoe. There seems to be just an invisible source again, where like there's a dust cloud, a tree falls over, a kind of... Oh, when he's doing his jogging? He, this is all when he's doing his jogging. Yeah, that right. bit was creepy. That bit actually freaked me out when the container box just rumbles. That whole part, actually, we need to talk about that because that part is amazing. That part of the movie gave Well, that's basically gave, what we're talking about here. So after he's seen Carl disappear... He sees the container kind of jump into the air and fall, dust around him. We see behind him that a tree just falls over. Justin doesn't really see it because he's looking down at the ground where he finds Polaroids. Well, that's the point as well. He does, I mean, like if you watch that, yeah, he does turn around. The dust can get in his face. And as he turns around, the sun almost has like a shutter effect where it's almost like a camera taking pictures. And then, yeah, when he looks down at the ground, there's just like magically appeared in a perfect circle around him. Or these Polaroids of his face. That gave me the creeps big time. And it was a really cool part of this movie. Here is a part then where we see the worst loop, the tent. So it's like five minutes that seems to pass like it's no time. It's like 10 seconds for that guy, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty much. But we see it on a clock and it's not the second hand. I don't know why they didn't make it a second hand. They made it the minute hand that moves. But it moves very, very quickly, and he basically, we're going to see later, that he basically can just move a few steps, and then he starts over. His loop is awful. And he's killed very brutally. <laughs> There's music that just starts over and over and over again. So that's awful, but we're just kind of teased with that. We don't get to see inside of it. That's later. Nice kind of uh, movie making here where we hear the skipping record, and then we cut to a skipping record. For karaoke night, where Justin finally just says, look, how what's going on? Explain it to me. All he says is, well, he doesn't say a lot. He talks about the fact that there are two moons. It's kind of an illusion, he says. Some sort of phenomenon. Two means truth, and three means ascension. I don't know what he meant by two means truth, though. Like what? I mean, I get ascension, because that's the whole point. But what's the truth? Like, that it's actually happening again, or... Possibly. It's also possible that this is when people start to realize what's going on. It doesn't seem to be when Hal gives excellent truth because he's still very kind of cryptic about what's going on. And he won't really explain because he says that Justin won't understand. And I agree. You know, I mean, if someone told me that, I'd say you're nuts. You know, you're crazy and we're leaving right now. And Hal does not want them to leave. 
I can get behind that part of it. What Hal does say is if he wants the answer, he needs to swim under the buoy that is in the picture that Justin brought. The answer will be there. Oh yeah, it is. Big time. Aaron gets high with Anna on some sort of weird red kind of marijuana, I guess. Yeah. Though we do find later it does actually come from a flower. They refer to it as being the red flower and it actually is made from a flower. Not, we, the, not the red flower from the jungle, but... No. We see the moons. Like, Anna shows him this weird place where the moons are doubled, but they actually look like eyes in the sky. Yeah, that's creepy. Which is another thing that Lizzie seems to be constantly drawing what's going on and how the entity might look. And I think she'd already been working on that before we saw it, or maybe it's right after this, but it makes it very obvious that she's drawing stuff that is going on that most of the rest of people aren't talking about. So she does see it. There's a lot of cutting between scenes where we see what Justin's doing, then what Aaron's doing, then back to Justin and Aaron. So at this point, Justin encounters a crying woman. We find out her name is Jennifer. We will later find out that she's only here because she's been looking for her husband, Mike, who seemed to disappear, who we will also see later. We find out she's the woman who's been leaving all the notes because she just can't sleep. Yeah, the parties at night were fun for a couple nights. Now I just want to sleep. And so she's kind of miserable here. And this is important because everybody else seems happy to be here. So this gives the one bit of this world that Justin can kind of cling to and go, you know what, not everybody is happy here. This isn't perfect. Because everything else tries to make it seem like some sort of utopia. This is what life should be. But she's here. She's kind of miserable. Do you think she's stuck here? No, because, again, Mike's story, and Mike and Chris, I think. Yeah. You don't get to see her. You get to see her briefly in, in resolution. And so I think the timeline is she might have been here for nine years, but I don't think she's been here for the full ten. Like, I don't think she can possibly be have been trapped here. She might have been trapped here once. Maybe she got here at the end, at the end of the, the last loop, and that she knows what's coming, perhaps, but... It's got to be close. So we go back to Aaron at one of these points where we're cutting back and forth. And Anna is describing this effect, this two moon effect, and saying that to properly see it, you have to be, basically you have to be high to see it. And that's why he wouldn't normally see it the way that he's seeing it now. So somehow this red flower gives them a kind of sixth sense sight into what's going on. Anna says that she didn't send the video, which surprises Aaron. She said, no, 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 we all agreed that we weren't going to do that. We left this message in case we disappeared and it would be for our family and our friends to know what happened to us, which makes me think that they had made it before they'd ever hit a reset in the loop. So they had made these because at one point, maybe it was more of a cult idea. And it's only after they've been reset do they know what they are really stuck in. And I really like that concept. Well, we used to be more of a religious cult, but now, yeah, we we know what's real. Yeah. I do want to go back to Jennifer just for a second, because when Justin asks her how long she's been here, she has a weird response of, it's been a few, it's been a few, she doesn't know. And that's a problem with kind of everybody who seems to be stuck in these loops, which kind of makes me think she is stuck, but I'm not sure. I'd, I'd have to see the other yeah. movie to know for sure. We cut to the next day, Justin dives under the water, he gets the box, it's full of kind of rocks and another tape. They And let's not forget the giant monster at the bottom of the lake that we see. <laughs> that Aaron doesn't believe, which is interesting, because this is the first thing that Aaron kind of doesn't believe. Yeah. But yes. We get to see it because we're looking from a bird's eye view down on the on the boat, and it's some big Cthulhu monster at the bottom of the lake. Justin's ready to leave. Yeah. And Aaron is still not wanting to leave. But they have this tape, and they show the tape, and everybody gets excited. Oh, we haven't seen one of these in a while. I mean, they, they have seen these before. Yeah. And the tape basically shows Aaron and Justin when they were younger, trying to kind of indoctrinate other people, trying to bring other people into the group. And it's also this point where they're wearing the white button-down shirts, and it looks like they're wearing a uniform. Which again leads into where I kind of think they must have been more of a cult kind of group before. I think Hal, though, kind of chastises him for that. He's like, you were the one that wanted it to be a religious cult. You were the one that were trying to indoctrinate people. 
I had nothing to do with that. You were the one that tried to make this into what you are now spinning is the reason that you left. And that, that this is the whole thing with Justin and his whole control freak kind of problem is everything seems to be his fault, in a sense, because of his reluctance to let go of power, basically, and wanting more power. It's like, because Hal, I think at this point, he's like, you left because you wanted to be the leader. And I've told you there there can be no leaders. There There is no leader. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting... It is this point, yeah? When he yes, says that? Yeah, it is this yeah. point, yeah. He also refers to the tape meaning forgiveness, so he should forgive them for what they did. But it's also at this point where it comes out that Justin was lying about the castration, about all kinds of things. He was told some terrible things. So I'm not sure how much he was lying and how much he believed what he was told and thus decided it was time to go. But once Aaron finds out that things like the castration are not true. He's like, no, I'm staying. And he's very upset. This leads to them truly kind of being separated. Justin walks off, tries to... Well, he has to walk off because the car battery's dead. (laughs) He eventually sees Carl. And this is my favorite scene, I think. So Carl walks into a building. Justin goes up to check it out. He opens the door and Carl is hanging there dead. Then Carl appears behind him and kind of yells at him. You better not have touched my bike. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) not even caring about the body. But this is proof that Justin can't deny now. Yeah. He already suspected weird things were going on. But here's where we get our exposition. But to me, this is the perfect point. We've been teased with it up until now. There's still a fair amount of movie, so it's not just being thrown in right at the tail end. They put all the pieces together for us. And through Carl, who is not the nicest person, (laughs) who messes with Justin a lot, who are not really sure what he's about. We find out in this conversation that he had told Justin a long time ago the terrible things that were going on, and it was him that told him to get out. And he's like, yeah, I remember you. Why are you back, idiot? Like, you got out. But this is where he really explains the loops. He even shows how this loop kind of works by throwing a cigarette through a loop and then walking into it and then reappearing. Yeah. Which is what I don't get about this point is we see his bubble is, seems to be very small. He's like, look, you know, he disappears after four feet. But then we see him earlier when he's jogging around and he's way, it seems to be he's way out from his, his bubble. That seemed like a bit of a weird oversight. Unless we're at the edge of the bubble here, but where he's walking is still within it, right? We don't know exactly the shape of it at this point. I'm willing to cut them slack on that one. What I do have a problem with is the fact that Carl starts his loop over understanding exactly what's going on every time, because later we see a loop where that doesn't happen. And so that kind of inconsistency really does bother me, and I'm not exactly sure how to work There's that. There's a loop that doesn't... We're going to get to that in a minute. Is that what you were going to talk about before? No, we're going we're gonna to get to it in a minute. So he does say how some people have worse loops than others. Look at your camp. You've got like 10 years. That's pretty good. Whereas his, I think, is three hours. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Though that is kind of an issue because we've seen him outside of that three hours. It's kind of weird. That it's almost like his loop is somehow within the barrier of the camp loop. And so it doesn't matter what time Carl reappears. It's the camp time. Because we see Carl at night, but we've also seen him walking when it's early daytime. So I'm not sure exactly Mm. how that works, but I'll give them that because, again, we have the weird tent, which is constantly happening. So there must be loops within the barriers of other loops. Well, yeah, I think the camp itself must be like the giant loop. And then these are all bubbles inside it. So I think we even get to see that, like even the, the tent has those little totem poles exactly. around, so, and it's a tiny little it's bubble. It's tiny, so maybe the, the size smaller... of the bubble is the length of time, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Of course, the tent, I always wonder how he got into that loop. If it was so small, how did he get into this loop to begin with? Because he had enough time to set up a tent and everything, but it's like the, the loop starts at a certain time. I think it's just decided by the god, by the entity. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that guy was a bad guy and this is his punishment. Carl is really mad, though, because he is trying to find his own way out in any way, shape, or form, which is why he wants a gun. He wants Justin to go get him a gun. And he's really mad because the thing won't let him sleep. It won't let him dream. He doesn't like being entertainment for it. He just hates the entity, whatever it is. 
we go back to an Aaron scene where he's talking to Al, and basically birds drop. They have dropped pictures of Aaron onto the ground. Aaron picks them up, shows it to Hal, and says, what is this? What's going on? And Hal goes on kind of a, a long talk about the creature exists. It might be something that's a frequency that we just can't see. He asks a very interesting question. Hal says, do you have control of your life if you give away a tiny part of it? Do you have control at all? And I found that to be a very interesting concept to bring up. Because here, they have a lot of control, but they've given up their ability to age beyond a certain time. They've given up their ability to leave this loop. And so they have some control over their lives, but do they really? And I thought that was an interesting thing to bring up. Aaron says he needs to go find Justin. Hal says, I literally can't go with you. Yeah. <laughs> because he can't go through the loop. And he basically just says to Aaron, I hope you get to make your own choice. So he doesn't say, I hope you stay. He says, I hope you get to make your own choice, which is kind of odd. I feel like he's trying to manipulate Justin into staying, but Aaron, he's always giving a choice. I don't, maybe he likes Aaron more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe that's kind of the, the whole cult kind of social engineering methods though like so what would work for Aaron wouldn't work for Justin and vice versa could be there's a beautiful scene here where Anna and Aaron are on opposite sides of a barrier of a loop and they can't see each other and now comes yeah, another one of my favorite scenes so Justin has found the house of the man they keep calling the gun nut tweaker <laughs> who is Chris and Mike is outside doing something like chopping wood or something and Justin knocks on the door, and Chris is trying to talk through the door, and she said, just come in. So he goes <laughs> yeah. in, and then it's just kind of a beat-up place, and Chris is chained to the wall, and we find out that Mike is trying to get him sober, and we also find out that Chris and Carl were shooting buddies. So when Mike says, you were going to give that guy a gun? It's like, well, of course, he's my buddy. Why wouldn't I give him a gun? But we find out that Chris and Carl were pretty terrible guys like they'd get drunk and steal the salvation army kind of donation <laughs> buckets and mike finds a, a hard drive we don't get to see what's on it but we can see from the reactions that it was something terrible and here we get just a bit more exposition these guys have been stuck in this loop justin asks mike at one point how long have you been here he's like well i said i'd be here for a week to try and get chris sober it's been a lot of weeks yeah. He doesn't know how many weeks. They've been trying all kinds of horrible things to get out of the loop. And we're going to see that they try even one more crazy thing. This is the point where I start to get really confused by how does this work? Carl seems to always remember when he responds exactly who he is, where he is. But these guys, they say, if I have to hear you say that one more time, I'm going to go nuts. So they remember having heard them say the first lines over and over again, but they somehow have knowledge that they've been doing this for time after time. It's almost like they have a memory they shouldn't have. So either everybody should loop back to the beginning but retain their previous knowledge, or they should loop back to the beginning and actually be starting over every time. I'm pretty sure that, well, as far as I was aware, everyone did have knowledge. Everyone remembered then why would they start off saying the exact same thing every time? You mean for Mike and Chris? Well, without referring to a resolution, just from what we see there, this guy is the gun nut tweaker, so he's coming in. He can't just walk in. Maybe he has tried to walk in and go, hey, it's me, and he's been shot on, on spot. But he has to kind of duck behind the car and it's, it's me, your buddy Mike. But yeah, I get what you're saying. It's like, if he knew Mike was coming after the recent... Yeah, I never thought about that. Like, he'd be like, oh, well, here we are again. Yeah, why do they have to go through that initial kind of... Unless there's like a kind of reboot time that, it, you know, it takes them a minute to realize where they are. It doesn't seem to work for anybody else. But that, yeah, I get... I totally understand what you're saying now. Yeah, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. It makes for some funny jokes. Sure. But it breaks that consistency with all the other loops. We don't know what the camp looks like when they reloop, but we know that the tent, he clearly remembers. Oh, yeah, he knows what's going on. Carl knows Carl what's definitely going knows on. what's going on. The, the whole village knows what's going on, or at least the ones that have been there for the reset. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I never thought about that. That's, uh, hmm, I didn't think about it. 
Chris does make a really strong speech about not giving in to the thing at all ever, which ties right back into what Hal was saying before about if we give over a little bit, do we give over everything? And in Chris's point of view, yes, that's exactly what happened. We gave in once. Look what happened. Yeah. And of course, everybody, Carl, Mike, Chris, all these people who are not at the camp are desperately telling Justin, get out, because if you don't make it out before the ascension, before your loop restarts, you're stuck here forever. It's at this point that Aaron finds the tiny loop and the man in the tent and starting over and over again. And the poor man just is constantly trying to escape, but can't. And he sees Aaron watching him. He's like, get out, quick. And he has to like do it in bursts because that's all the time he has. Until finally he just runs at Aaron and explodes. <laughs> yeah. And that's enough to get Aaron to move away. Because, yeah, that'd be pretty awful if somebody else got stuck in that tiny loop. Yeah. But I did think he made a comment about, you can't help me. So that, yeah, you, you wouldn't stay. Because, yeah, that would be awful. Yeah. That would be literally hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just endless torment and punishment. God. So then we go back to Justin, and it's at this point, he's talking to Mike, and he says, if you could get out, what would be the first thing that you would do? Because they're desperately trying to get out. And he's like, oh, actually, I go see my wife, Jennifer. She was always leaving these notes. I used to find it really irritating, but now I just can't wait to see her again. And it's very bittersweet, because we know they're both kind of stuck. At least I think so. I think that's kind of the irony, is I think that they're stuck in loops that are so close, but they could never see each other. And that's kind of why Justin doesn't tell him that. You get the impression that he's about to say, you know, I have seen your wife, but to tell him that she's also probably stuck in another loop is probably too much for Mike to have to... Because he's going to have to live with that for an eternity. Yeah, yeah. Mike sets the house on fire, just kind of stands in it, and then slowly walks in. Yeah. And then we see this loop reset. And yes, this is where they're kind of starting over, saying the same things, doing the same things. As Justin is traveling back, we see that there's now two and a half moons, so we know that it's getting close. Coming. There's an RV that appears out of nowhere, and kind of like a mountain lion as well. And then Aaron just appears. He just kind of comes into existence. They talk for a bit, and then they walk away, and then this film projector starts showing them walking away. And then we see a film within the film showing that same one of them kind of walking away and what they had just said. And at this point, I thought the movie is trying to tell me they're already stuck, that they've already tried this, and that every time they tried to get out. Ah, I see what you mean. That's what I thought that it was trying to say. So I'm not exactly sure now what it's trying to say. Hmm. Well, I mean, what you do know, what you kind of understand from that, the, the scene is that the god, the thing, is angry because he batters the projector off into the distance. And I think you hear him roar, yeah? You hear, like, a roar at that point as well. But, yeah, I don't know the, the film within the film within the film within the film. It's a lot like the beginning of the Stanley Parable where it's, like, the screen inside the screen inside the screen. I don't know. I mean, maybe he wanted them to see that and, like, to be in awe of, like, to, like oh, what does this mean? But they actually... As soon as they see it, they just walk away, don't they? they just... I don't think they even saw it. I think they walked away before they even saw it. Yeah, it's almost like he's saying, look at how powerful I am and like, look at how weird this is. But then they, you're not even looking at me. Come on, guys. <laughs> they pass by giant statues. There's like a dragon, a weird face. And then we see Lizzie drawing that kind of totem poles. Aaron is saying at this point, though, when they start talking again, Aaron says that a loop is probably better than a terrible job in which they're doing the same thing every day anyway. At least here they'd be doing the same thing every day, but getting better and getting real food. Oh, yeah, that also and links back to what you were saying. He was saying, thing. like, death only takes a second. Yeah, sorry. That's what you, links back to what you were... Like, they've got this cumulative knowledge where they can learn how to play the violin, learn magic tricks perfectly yes. and stuff. Yeah, like, again, that really takes away from the first... Unless that's... First movie, maybe first loop? (laughs) I think perhaps the only problem really is the Mike and Chris loop. If we hadn't seen it that way, then maybe the rest all work. Mm -hmm. And they do realize and they... Because everybody else seems to get it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure why theirs doesn't. Yeah, it is true though. Like what you said, it's either be stuck in a loop outside the loop in the regular world doing the same thing, nine to five, or be stuck in a kind of utopia loop which well ends badly but 
They make it to Carl's place. Aaron annoyingly, like, this is where he wants to talk about this. He's like, oh, sit down for a minute. And Justin's like, we don't have time for a minute. It's so... Aaron can be so irritating in this way. And this is where Aaron's trying to say, look, is it not better to just stay? Justin is like, no, we got to get out. Carl's given them a map. They can escape. He leaves the gun for Carl. Carl just shoots it off into the sky and then shoots himself happily. And then immediately is respawned. So he, he responds immediately and says something nasty because he's realized he's still stuck. We see Tim make a kind of show of unlocking the shack, the brewing shack. And when they walk inside, they see that there are kind of thousands of old tapes from reel to reels decades ago. Yeah. And immediately playing is them. And we see what they're doing is things that they've already done. Which, again, is why I was a bit confused. Are they telling me they're already stuck in the loop? We see the camp group stand in a circle, a rope falls from the sky, and then there's nothing but ash. Which we will see later as Justin and Aaron get to that point and they actually find kind of the ash and Anna's yellow scarf. Yeah. At this point, Justin says basically he'll feel guilty for life if he leaves Aaron, and so he's willing to stay. And that's kind of all Aaron wanted, and he said, okay, well, then let's go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, what Aaron wants this whole time, what he says he wants, is he just wanted a chance to mess up his life, too. Like, Justin is always trying to take control and make sure that things work, but Aaron says, you've messed up everything all the time. I just want a chance to do that, too. Yeah. So by getting kind of control over his life, which is all he wanted, he's now willing to go back into the quote-unquote real world. <laughs> but he does this at a time where they're desperately pushing the car to get it to start. Because of that stupid battery! <laughs> because of the stupid battery, which is his fault. And he, he's like, I want to drive. So I have to stop and switch <laughs> with impending doom hovering over them. Yeah. <laughs> racing towards them mm. but that's what he said i just want to be able to mess up with you i don't want to be controlled i want to make my own mistakes we see massive explosions in the background the car finally starts they're trying to get through birds don't make it through but they do and the campers are there and they seem to be looking on and they seem to be happy for them that's kind of where the movie ends yeah yeah and yeah yeah that's the endless where to begin <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so what is you the... Say, you said, where to begin? Well, at the beginning, there's this quote. <laughs> I love that. Oh, we're, 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 we're in our loop, Justin. This is it. We have to do this podcast forever. So, I mean, basically, I'm interested about the mother and if she escaped the cult as well. And then I think she got out, maybe. and But maybe she was doing the same as them, driving a car through the barrier. Maybe she crashed immediately after that, or perhaps she's somewhere inside the loop, is somewhere else that we haven't seen. Because I think that would be a dead giveaway if they saw their own mother. You know, you can't really put that in the movie without giving everything away. So maybe she's off somewhere. Because they can't leave, so they couldn't go out of the loop to take them from the burning car. That's what I don't understand, because Hal says, I rescued you from the burning car. But and it is right on that? the edge. Yeah, yeah, but how do you do that if... They're outside the loop. Yeah, so I think they must... Well, I mean, that, well, that's the fact. Let's follow the facts then. The facts say that they must have crashed inside that loop because they can't go outside. I think the mother was part of the cult. I've I written... Like, I, I basically put it down as like, if we take it as 9.9 .9 years, right? So let's just say like the day before Ascension, right? So we've got... It's not a coincidence that that car crash happened there. The mother was part of this group. She wanted to get out with her two kids how old would they have been at the time? Old enough to probably, well, not remember their mother. Do they remember her? They have to be somewhat older because we've seen them in the video where they had the button-down shirts and they're trying to indoctrinate people. They weren't little kids. Oh, no, no, no. I, I mean, like, so let's say that's towards the end of their 10 years. Mm -hmm. So if we say they're five years old and they're 15 in that video, that's probably a little bit too young. Like, I'm trying to figure out how old they would be in that video. 18? 17? Something like that. Right. So let's say they were six or seven or maybe eight years old. Yeah, they'd still have memories of their mother, I would guess. Or maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. Without pictures and without something physical to remember them with, maybe you can't. And then they get out for 10 years 
And so they're now 28, let's say. And that, that would be the right time frame, I think, right? So I reckon the mother was escaping. She had not been included in the first loop. That's why she was probably trying to get out. Uh, and that's maybe how they... They didn't manage to cross the bubble, so that's a problem. Here's what I think. I think that the loop has been going on for multiple decades. Oh, it's been at least 100. When that prospector guy, you know, he's like from the 1800s, the guy in the tent, you know, he's he looks like an old... But I mean even the camp loop, because mm. they have tapes dating back to the 40s, I think. So it must have been going on. So I feel like Hal and possibly Tim have been doing this for a very long time. Lizzie, probably not as long. No, maybe 10 years, uh, maybe 20, but yeah. Hal, Tim, for sure. Shane, I reckon, and Anna. So yeah, yeah. So they take the kids and basically, yeah, so like we get, right at the beginning of the film, we get to see that even the stuff is timeless. So like the picture that they drew when they were inside the cult as kids, you know, it's still the same picture, which is weird. Like even I, the animals, everything resets. Like I, I guess, was wondering if it was part of a bigger loop. I think so. I mean, I, I think what if the whole world is a gigantic loop? That's kind of what I was starting to think, especially this time, is that perhaps they are in just a much bigger loop. And so they escape this one, but they're actually stuck in another loop Yeah, that will be longer, but they'll end up coming back to the camp. And it'd be very interesting to see how they could play with that of coming back and... Having the previous knowledge? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I like this movie a lot. I like the whole religious kind of aspect to it. It's like what, what, what I was kind of talking about before is this is what a lot of religious people want in their lives. They want a God that intervenes and that answers their prayers and that is watching them. That's creepy. That's creepy. Like the whole thing where there's, like you said, there's a whole archive of tapes where this God has been watching your every move and has documented it and is always watching you. That to me is, that's the true horror of this film is Getting the God that you think that you want. Like, do you really want that? What if your God has hobbies? Like, if, if he is really interested in you, and like, what are his hobbies? Perhaps they're watching you die every 10 seconds or having the ability to punish you in such terrifying, horrible way that this God intervenes directly. This God plays with you, literally plays with you, has tugs of war with you, will help you do magic tricks. This God wants to be loved and wants to be respected and adored. And this God wants you to submit fully to him. That's terrifying, like, in my opinion. One thought that I did have at the end, I was, was like, maybe this God is, like, the God of the monotheistic religions, and maybe he is kind of a benevolent God after all, in the end. <laughs> Hear me out. This <laughs> is just an idea that I had. But, you know, he challenges you. Justin and Aaron ultimately get their perfect reward, don't they, for kind of not giving in, not giving up control, not seeking a holy grail in a sense. They, they know potentially what's on offer and they're still like, nah, we want to be in control of our own destinies. We're busting out of here. And they've sorted out their own problems. Like Justin doesn't control Aaron anymore. They're, they're more on equal terms. It's like, I don't, again, I'm not going to say he's a completely benevolent God, but he's the God of the Bible. He's like, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to mess you up. If you live a good life and if you do this, then, you know, I'm not going to leave you alone. But I potentially could be really horrible to you. Yeah. And I think that that's what this movie, to me anyway, I could be completely wrong reading something totally into it that's not there. But I think that this, this movie is taking a look at religion and saying, is personal interventionist God what you really want? I could see that, but I don't think that your viewpoint that Justin and Aaron are the good characters here. Mike doesn't seem like a bad guy. Anna, Shane... Oh, no, I mean... Um, but sorry. They, should, they should also be allowed something, right? Yeah, and, and that's, that's where the kind of the terrifying aspect comes into it, because what does this god really want? He wants you just to... You're basically a, part, a character in a play. He's just watching you repeat this thing for his own amusement, in a sense. So is this like me watching Netflix, then? <laughs> Am um, I forcing these poor people to be in their loops over and over again? I get, and that's another layer to it, is like, are we the gods? You know, are, are we the ones that are... Perhaps that's what the uh, projector screen is, is all about. It's like, the screen inside the screen inside the screen, you know? Are we in the loop, you know? But yeah, are we these this awful god that um, is forcing them to relive the same horrible thing over and over again every time we rewind the tape? Rewind the tape. Yeah, okay, that's not dated at all. 
<laughs> Not for this movie. They have to rewind the things. But I mean, just uh, who who's going to rent this movie and rewind it? <laughs> That's such a dated phrase now. But anyway, yeah. So that was that's it. I loved this movie. It was great, really good. I'm glad that you recommended it to me. There's a good chance that we will talk about resolution in the future. And I think once you've seen that, I reckon you might agree with me that watching three first, the, the, it's not three, it's not a third part. It's watching the endless first and then watching resolution is a good way to watch it. To be honest, because the endless as a standalone movie is fantastic. Recommend thumbs up. So if you like this episode, if you like what we do, by all means, check out our other episodes or check out our other podcast, Buyer's Remorse, in which we subject each other to games that are in our library, but we haven't played yet. There are a lot of them. A lot of gems. And not so much. (laughs) We also have our Steam group under the same name, Filling in the Gaps, where we do reviews, we put out announcements for upcoming episodes, and Darren is very good at giveaways. I love doing giveaways. I'm the I'm the giveaway person, yeah. So if you want to solve some puzzles to win some games, join the group. Give it a go. Some of them are hard. Some of them are, well, not so hard. And if you want to leave us some comments, say how great we're doing, hopefully, or some <laughs> ideas on how to maybe improve things a bit, or games you'd like to have us play, movies you'd like us to watch, Filling in the gaps podcast at gmail.com is still probably the best way to get a hold of us, though we do tend to check comments when we get them. We have so few that we we treasure them. (laughs) Put them in little glass boxes. Gaps filled and more gaps created. to Filling in the Gaps. I am Justin. And I'm Darren. And today we're going to be discussing the movie called The Endless. It is from 2017. It is... Would this be another low-budget one, could we say? There are some special effects that obviously cost a bit of money, but for the most part, it's a fairly small... Set in a desert? Not exactly, yeah. I mean, 